All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Arch Penemies. I'm Eric Smith, uh, and unfortunately, my co-host and BFF, Chris Yuri could not make it today. Uh, word on the street, he is involved in some kind of duel with a rival of his own. Uh, and today, we'll be talking about two French writers who got into just that. Marcel, you know, I have been mispronouncing his name uh, while talking about it on the podcasts before this one. It's Marcel Proust, if I am doing it right this time. And yes, you Jean- are. Oh, thank God. And Jean Laurent, uh, two writers who ended up dueling one another. Uh, and that voice that just chimed in is the one and only Jordan Castle, who's here Ooh. as our guest. Uh, Jordan, can you tell our listeners a little bit about you and your work? Absolutely. So first off, thank you so much for having me on Arch Penemies. This is very exciting because I love old-timey gossip and I love weird trivia. Uh, So as for me, I am the author of Disappearing Act. It's a memoir in verse for young adults and older. So I say a hard PG-13, just like this podcast. It's about the aftermath of a parent's incarceration, a first love, a best friendship, and more, you know, coming-of-age chaos and heart. And I guess, you know, I've had work in The New Yorker, Taco Bell Quarterly, and other places, so you know I have range. And I live in Philadelphia. I cannot see your house, but I am close to you. (laughs) I love the range from The New Yorker to The Taco Bell Quarterly. That is is fantastic. (laughs) Yes, me too. You got to have the high and and the higher, you know? Yes, I agree. Uh, So before we jump into this bitter rivalry between these two French literary titans, Jordan, I have to ask you what we ask every guest. Uh, And since this is a new podcast, we've had all but two of them. Uh, What is your pettiest author rivalry? You don't have to name names. And really, it doesn't even have to be someone you know. Like, I don't like Jonathan Franzen, so there's a new one from me. (laughs) What about you? Oh, so I love this because not technically petty. I guess this is pretty large, but it feels petty because he, he is dead. So, you know, what? do with that what you will. <laughs> um, I am going to pick on Roald Dahl, uh, much oh, as I love his okay. work. He was, you know, kind of a big old bigot and uh, an anti-Semite. And we just don't love that for him. Uh, I actually did in doing my homework for this. I dug up a quote, which is very interesting. Roald Dahl actually died the year that I was born, which I didn't know oh. until I was doing my homework. Um, but I love this quote. I think you'll appreciate this too. It was somebody at the Anti-Defamation League at the time who wrote in the New York Times, you know, following his death, talent is no guarantee of wisdom. Praise for Mr. Dahl as a writer must not obscure the fact that he was also a bigot. I mean, could not have said that better myself i love that you know it's it's really funny one interesting thing uh we've been learning as we've been working on this podcast is like some of the authors who we consider like classic authors and and historical literary figures and all of that like weren't weren't like around all that like they they, they were around fairly recently right like we talked about we talked about Tolkien and and C.S. Lewis in in the last episode and like C.S. Lewis died in like 1963 like uh, on the same day John F. Kennedy was killed isn't that wild like these are modern times they've all been modern times 
All right, so we used a lot of resources for this episode, as we do all of them, uh, and our resident research experts, literary historian and poet, Dr. Timory Schmidt, uh, pulled together some great bits to help really gel this episode together. Uh, we'll be sourcing from A Reader's Guide to Proust, In Search of Lost Time by David Ellison, Marcel Proust, A Life, translated by Ewan McCarran, Marcel Proust, A Biography, Volume 1 and 2 by George D. Painter. I know, two volumes. Uh, 16 Letters of Marcel Proust to Joseph Reinhardt by D.R. Watson. Uh, Proust, Class, and Nation by Edward J. Hughes. Uh, Mirages and Mad Beliefs. Proust the Skeptic by Christopher Pendergast. Resting Places, the Burial Sites of More Than 14,000 Famous Persons uh, by Scott Wilson. I just love uh, the idea. I know you didn't, but I was hoping that you you had to read all of these to truly prepare <laughs> for this. I mean, it is a lot. Uh, Timory is, uh, I don't know if uh, our listeners have looked up our researcher, Timory Schmidt, but she has a PhD and she loves research. Uh, she's someone who would be a student for her entire life if she could. Uh, awesome. So we're very lucky to have her uh, using her JSTOR access to help us with this yes. podcast. Uh, oh, goodness. Who else did we use in here? Oh, Monte Mare by Philip Julian. Uh, Emperors of Dreams, Drugs in the 19th Century by Mike J. Uh, Encyclopedia of Gay Histories and Cultures by George E. Haggery. Uh, and James J. Conway's Strange Flowers website, um, which is a treasure trove of insight. I highly recommend checking out Strange Flowers. Um, and there's numerous other articles that we'll be quoting as we move along through the story of how these two men decide to settle their differences with a gun. But first, I mean, as you do, obviously, just <laughs> saying, yes, as you do. Uh, but first, let's talk about our boys. Uh, we like to break down both of the authors before we jump into their rivalry. Uh, so you understand how they got there. Uh, and we'll start that with Marcel Proust. So, Marcel Proust was a novelist, essayist, and literary critic, widely considered to be one of the most influential writers of the 20th century. Uh, his work was heavily influenced by contemporary cultural change in France, namely the fall of the aristocracy uh, and the rise of the middle class and growing influence of technology. His full name? Valentin Louis-Georges-Eugène-Marcel Proust, uh, all <laughs> of I which just... I... I... <laughs> Can I just tell you everything I know about Proust, including how to pronounce his name, I learned from the movie Little Miss Sunshine, and I am proud of that. Oh my God. I love that. And yes. I completely forgot that that's a thing. <laughs> that's everything that I know. I'm not kidding. They're going to take away my graduate degree, and that's okay. <laughs> well, so our boy Proust... Uh, in addition to uh, appearing in Little Miss Sunshine, was born in <laughs> Paris in 1871 uh, as the Third French Republic was solidifying, a time of great political and social turmoil. Uh, there's a lot going on during this era. The government is literally established a year before he's born, uh, after the Second French Empire collapsed during the Franco-Prussian War. Uh, it's this era of the French Third Republic that our kiddo grows up in, surrounded by political and social violence. But hey, his parents are rich. 
and not you, just rich. we should all hope honestly that we should at least <laughs> be rich <laughs> we absolutely should uh they're not just rich but also socially prominent uh his father adrian is a renowned pathologist and epidemiologist known for his work with cholera uh and his mother jean clements was extremely well read and came from a wealthy german jewish family uh he had a close relationship with his mom he's raised catholic after his father though he never really practiced and later becomes an atheist and a mystic i just love now, that he's also a mystic just like yes. if i could dream up one career for myself it's probably to be a mystic so good <laughs> on him so we're gonna enter familiar territory with our kiddo's childhood so like many of the other folks we've talked about on this podcast he was a sickly child <laughs> uh he <laughs> i don't i don't know why this is a trend jordan but like every author we've talked about so far has some sort of sickly origin story it's all very like dickensian for that's for how you become a everyone. writer you you have to like stay inside you know you can't get a lot of sunlight you're you're a sick child we all begin that way in writing I know it's it's wild. Uh, so he, he he has asthma. So he has asthma, and his first asthma attack happens when he's nine. Uh, and while he's great in school, you know, being ill disrupts his attendance. Uh, he ends up attending. Oh, there's so many names I'm going to mispronounce in this. The the lychee. Uh, oh, I love that you said it like like lychee. Like that's uh, what I thought like it the, might be. The fruit. I th- uh, li- lissy. This is my like high school French coming back. My grandfather in heaven is like, Jordan, you can do this. I know. <laughs> yes. So we t- attend Lisi, a private school so elite and fancy uh, that teachers have included folks like John Paul Sater. Uh, it's still a school, actually. It's 220 years old. Uh, presidents, emperors, prime ministers attended the school and also William Carlos Williams. So much depends on the red wheelbarrow. Right, right, Jordan? I also love, I mean, that man had to have, you have to have three names to attend that school. Honestly, that's what it sounds like. So we're right on track there. It does. Do you think William Carlos Williams ever got in a fight with anyone? Like the person who ate or whose plums he ate, you know, do you think there was something going on? Absolutely. But I, I feel like that man only fought with the pen, which is what you have to hope for. But also I feel like that might have been the case. I should do my homework after this <laughs> and see. We'll dedicate a next episode, see what WCW has going on. <laughs> Excellent. So uh, so Proust gets involved with writing early. Uh, he starts publishing literary magazines while he's at school. Uh, he starts writing uh, a regular column for Le Mensuel while he's a teenager. Uh, he helps found a literary review called Le Banquet. Uh, again, this is something that's probably familiar territory because in the last episode when we talked about Tolkien, you know, our boy was a teenager and had secret societies and was inventing languages and founding all kinds of stuff. Uh, writers back in the in this era, I don't know, they seem to be very uh, prolific even at a super young age. I was I was busy crafting the perfect away message. That, that was Absolutely. My, my, my buddy profile, <laughs> that thing was flawless. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> So during this era, he would study the work of Thomas Carlyle, Ralph Walder Emerson, who's definitely going to get an episode on this at some point, yes. uh, St. Simon, Stendhal, Florbert, Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, uh, so many over the years. And this would refine his theory of art uh, and the role of an artist. Uh, and despite the fact that our boy Proust was a sick kiddo, he did serve a year in the French army, uh, the experience of which would 
again, get ready familiar territory here, would inspire portions of his writing. Uh, however, navigating life at a fancy school and amongst wealthy circles and social elite really did a number on our guy. Uh, simply put, he turns out to be a bit of a snob. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, can, can you blame him? Honestly, when, when that's your vibe, when that's all that you're around, you're going to be yeah. a little snob, man, a little sick kid yeah. to a snob. That's a strange pipeline. And I love it. <laughs> so he's granted sick leave from his time in the military. Uh, and his father practically had to bully him into getting <laughs> a job. Uh, Proust never actually worked. You know, a lot of the other writers we've covered have had uh, significant jobs and academic careers. You know, we had, I mean, Tolkien worked on the W section of the dictionary. You know, they had they had real <laughs> jobs. Uh, but our boy here, he lived in his parents' apartment until both of his parents died. Uh, and then he just rocked out with the inheritance. That's amazing. <laughs> oh, wow. Perfect. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and this attitude of his, uh, now remember, he's only in the military for a year, which, you know, that wraps up for him in like 1890, uh, really ends up contributing to the problems he has getting published initially. Uh, his first book, uh, Swan's Way, uh, the first chunk of which doesn't actually come out until 1913, and he had to finance publication of the first volume himself. Uh, now, not that it, taking that long to get published is a bad thing. You know, it takes a lot of us a while to get published. Mm -hmm. uh, but this guy, he was, you know, sort of reveling in his snobbery. And and I don't know. I feel like he could have gotten to work sooner if he didn't just sit around that apartment. Absolutely. <laughs> he was just waiting for them to die. Maybe that's callous. But I was like, well, now I have the place to myself and I'm just going to party down, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so like, so out of the military uh, in 1896, like he does start to publish little bits and pieces of things. Um, I, I'm not going to pronounce this right, but Le Placer et Le Jour. Uh, I love it. This, yeah. Yeah. So it was this book that was like super fancy and cost twice what a book its size normally would <laughs> uh, way back when. Uh, it was not received super well which soured him on finishing that book that he wanted to write um and actually he had started a book at this time called uh jean uh Santiero, which was ended up being released uh posthumously after he died um so he was, he was that soured on his writing uh working on that compendium uh wow. during this era he wants to get into translation he wants to work on ruskin's works uh, and translate them into french but he really lacked a good proficiency in english uh, so he had his mother and uh, a woman named Marie Norlinger, who's one of his lover's cousins, uh, help him do the translating. <laughs> Can we just talk about that? That six degrees. Like, ah, uh, let me just find one of my lover's cousins. Just, you know, no big deal. Just go across and, and talk to them. Great. No big deal. No big deal. And and this work actually gets him a lot of praise in the industry and, and seems to put him on this like solid incline. Um, but, you know didn't do it himself. And in 1904, that's when his mother dies. Uh, and his own health is sort of failing him. But again, he's left this wildly huge inheritance. Uh, his mother dying uh, ends up having a pretty big impact on Proust. You know, like, yes, he lived at home and all of that. But like, he was extremely close to his mother. Um, and that influence on him and his work is, is pretty significant. Uh, his mother's politics Oh boy, they inform his own heavily. Uh, so he supports, and I and I think Proust's politics are really interesting because of just how um, 
uh, like contradictory a lot of them are so like yes. he supports the french third republic but he hates on all these other things right he he condemns anti-clerical measures uh but finds most clerics to be bigoted uh Ooh. he argues that socialism is a huge threat it's a bigger threat than the church Ooh. uh but then <laughs> i know and, but then he criticizes the insanity quote unquote, of conservatives uh, who he considers dumb and ungrateful uh, and calls the Pope obstinate and foolish. There are so, so many just... highs and lows in that. I just I just love the roller coaster <laughs> of it. You're rooting for him and then it's like, oh, but back oh. up again. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So he's what's known as a, uh, a, a, a Dreyfusard. Uh, and an early one at that, he's a supporter of Captain Alfred Dreyfus, uh, a military man of Jewish descent who was falsely accused of espionage, uh, convicted and sentenced to a life in prison. That's uh, so sad. Was... Can I just say, I, I, just, I was really hoping that it was going to be someone who like loves Richard Dreyfus, and then it took a turn. So, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, okay. But this takes an interesting historical turn that that I learned while we were working on this. Um, so evidence proves that he's innocent, but it gets suppressed. Uh, the real culprit was um, acquitted by a military court on these forged documents. Uh, and here's the famous bit. Uh, writer Emile Zola wrote about the corruption in a famous open letter titled Jacques, which is easily one of the most famous pieces of journalism ever. Uh, look up the Dreyfus affair. It's fascinating. Read up on Emile Zola. Um, I don't. I don't think Emile had any rivalry, so we probably won't talk about them. But the first <laughs> two years, the Nobel Prize was even in existence. Uh, the last two years of his life, he was nominated uh, both years. So he's a very wow. big deal journalism figure. And like you know, you hear that that phrase Jacques, uh, you know, used fairly frequently. So it is it is from this um famous historical piece. So yeah, a little history homework there for for our listeners. Uh if we dug into every nook and cranny, we'd never get to the fights, but I thought that was an interesting one <laughs> yes. uh worth highlighting here. And and the big takeaway here is that Proust was very complicated, right? He <laughs> he didn't believe in folks getting a leg up, though he would certainly get a leg up quite a bit with from his parents and their wealth. Uh, he admired the legacy of Christianity in France and argued for it, but he hated the clergy. Uh, he differed from a lot of writers of his generation by rejecting nationalism and class secretarianism. Uh, and towards the end of his life, he rejected moves in France to hold up colonialism in favor of a more liberal version. So there's there's things here that we can we can very much root for, I think, when it comes to him. Yeah, I think there's a lot of, I mean, it's so interesting too to see what looks like progress, you know, and, and not condemning someone who maybe has some some good stuff going on in the end, which is yeah. interesting. Little Miss Sunshine did not delve too deeply into that. So I'll have to get back to you. <laughs> and we all and we all have room to grow for sure. For sure. Yes. Uh, so with his mother gone and an inheritance in hand and an apartment to himself, himself uh, he spends 1908 to 1910 developing his skills and working on fragments about subjects like French nobility, women, stained glass windows, tombstones, and novels. <laughs> Those are my uh, <laughs> my personal favorite subjects, so I, I understand. <laughs> they all go together. I want to read exactly that book, combining those things. Yes. And, and he keeps working on these things for a while, um, eventually adding in a first-person narrator to the stories he wants to tell. Uh, again, he couldn't find a publisher, so he kept changing things. And eventually, uh, this becomes, you know what, I'm not even going to read the French version of this. It becomes uh, the book In Search of Lost Time, uh, the first chunk of which is published as Swan's Way, that, uh -huh. that 
chunk of a book that he was having a hard time publishing. Uh, it's metaphorically about his life and his struggle to write. And the finished book is 4,215 pages long, published in seven <laughs> volumes. Like he's Julia Child. Like, come on. Come on. All right. And, like, and it's so funny because, like, the the... It doesn't sound like you have much of a struggle to write when you have 4,215 pages. I, yeah, I you know. have a struggle to edit, sir. <laughs> oh, yeah. edit. So, so unfortunately, Proust, he dies before this book is completely published, actually. The last three volumes uh, were published uh, posthumously. Uh, he dies in 1922 of pneumonia and a pulmonary abscess and is uh, buried in a... Um, uh, He's buried in Paris at the age of 51. Uh, and while, yes, he's remembered for his body of work and his stories and everything, he's also remembered for coining the term, uh, fun history lesson, uh, involuntary memory, uh, a phenomenon uh, of memory triggered by smell, taste, or sound. You know, like they people always say that like smell is like the most nostalgic sense. You know, you smell something and brings back uh, a memory that you might have forgotten about that's that's involuntary memory isn't that um, um that's something this is like a science lesson but your amygdala is that related to hmm. i think that's the scent memory thing i also learned this from a movie this is not embarrassing <laughs> everything i know is from a movie as a writer this gives me shame but it's all storytelling we're all storytelling no, here, it is so all i love storytelling, it <laughs> you know like Pop culture teaches you all kinds of stuff for sure. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, and, and a lot of his contemporaries absolutely adored him. Uh, there's this quote from Virginia Woolf about him that's extraordinary. And I feel like every writer I know has felt this way about someone's writing compared to their own at some point. Uh, Virginia Woolf said, Proust, Proust so titillates my own desire for expression that I can hardly set out the sentence. Oh, if I could write like that, I cry. And at the moment, such is the astonishing vibration and saturation and intensification that he procures. There's something sexual in it that I can feel, that I can write like that and seize my pen. Then I can't write like that. Scarcely anyone so stimulates the nerves of languages in me. It becomes an obsession. That's so saucy. Like, oh, Mrs. Dalloway. I just, <laughs> I, I just love it. Like only Virginia Woolf would come out with something where, and I love Virginia Woolf, but I love that that really could have been a sentence that's like, damn, wish I could write like that. But it gets saucy <laughs> and, and heightened. It's, but it's very lovely. Like what a compliment. Oof. It is such a compliment. Like I want one of my writer friends to leave something like that for me on Goodreads. Like absolutely, I'm done after this. Five stars. I have been titillated <laughs> so, such that I cannot write myself. <laughs> oh goodness. So so how did this man who like reveled in wealth and 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 toiled in grief about his family, <laughs> who wrote these epic stories, um, but still thought he couldn't write, come to odds with another writer in his neck of the woods, one who. Honestly, he shared so much with. Um, so let's talk about Jean Laurent. Uh, born Paul Alexander Martin Tuval, Jean Laurent was born. And I, I will point out how he ends up with his, his nom de plume in a minute. Yes. Uh, Jean Laurent was born uh, in August of 1855 in Fecamp in the Normandy region of northwestern France. Uh, his dad was a wealthy shipowner. Uh, Jean was a novelist and poet known for starting trouble and writing about his horrific fever dreams. Um, and he was nowhere near as famous or influential as our boy Proust. Um, but yeah, just 
I, I don't know. I, I heard you chuckle a little bit, Jordan, when I said his dad was a wealthy ship. Well, I just because, love like, it. Like, like as if that's a job. Could you imagine that's the yes. description? Like, what do you do? I'm wealthy. I have a ship. Thank you. Yes. yes. And also so many of these writers come from this, this wild wealth. Like, mm-hmm. oh my goodness. It must be nice. It must yes. be nice. <laughs> and I, I love what Jean here is known for. Uh, drinking ether and then writing his horror stories i honestly like just i love that because i think were it any other genre you know like what else could you do in order to write horror stories i I have to ingest it (laughs) perfect Jean is fascinating. I, I, we don't have a lot about him uh, as as much as we do about Proust, but we'll dig into what we've got because um, he's he's kind of my favorite. It's it's incredible. Um, so it's so it's eighteen eighty. Uh, Jean moves to Paris uh, and he takes out a pen name or a nom de plume, since we are talking about French writers here. Uh, <laughs> after his mom finds the name Jean Laurent in a local directory, that's how he picks his <laughs> pen name. He just picks it out of a book like that which i think is great um because i know i know like in my day job you know in my literary agent life when people ask about a pen name i'm always like oh it should mean something to you it should be something important to you so you want to use it forever and like in this case it's just like pointed it at the yellow pages and then here we go do you have i mean this is a separate podcast but i'm like do you have a secret pen name that you would use do you know Ooh, i don't I should think of one. It's going to be Jean <laughs> Laurent. Jean Laurent. <laughs> Just steal it. Perfect. Oh, so Jean takes on the lifestyle of being a dandy, uh, which are men who are fastidious about their appearance and grooming, uh, sounding refined, and living a lifestyle that imitates the leisurely pursuits of the aristocracy, uh, regardless of their class and origin. It's it's like a, a it's almost like cosplay, you know, in a way. Yes, which, uh, it really is. Amazing. Yeah. Like the photos of them are fantastic. Like their outfits. Oh my God. I please, please look it up. Um, and a fun aside from our head researcher, Timory, uh, the feminine form of the word dandy is Quintrell. Uh, and she has a tattoo of that on her ribs because Timory is awesome. Hell yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, Jean was a big strapping dude with a blonde mustache. Uh, He painted his face. He dyed his hair garish colors. Uh, He wore coal eyeliner. He loved having lots of obnoxious rings and jewelry on. Uh, Lots of his time is spent in fashionable circles in France, uh, especially around uh, Montemar and dressing up in outrageous costumes to go to events. Uh, He was openly gay, and he cited ancient Greece as uh, noble heritage for the practice. Uh, And he became known colloquially as, and this is is so fucking rad, he... (laughs) He became known colloquially as the ambassador from Sodom is what he went by. That's incredible. Uh, just, what a, like, just incredible. a good backstory. I picture him as a superhero in that way. Like that outfit, that <laughs> yes. could be the trading card. Yes. Yes. So, so uh, now due to tuberculosis symptoms, uh, he starts on morphine uh, and then starts drinking ether, which is something they did back then, uh, yeah. which inspired a lot of his horror stories and descriptions of excess madness and violence. Uh, the downside was stomach ulcers and, and other health issues as a result of drinking ether. Um, yeah. But this is what ended up driving a lot of his writing. Um, when it comes to his writing, a lot of it is described as you know, misogynistic and depraved uh, for the sake of being shocking. Um, but he was infamous for writing salacious gossip about people in the scene, including his own friends. 
And this becomes relevant when we get to the beef between our two boys here. I, w- I gotta so say, he- at least this didn't happen today because he would be canceled so fast, oh so fast gosh, if yes. social media were around. But that's why we have duels. <laughs> so, yes, yeah. that's why we have duels back then. <laughs> uh, so he writes a number of collections of verse, uh, including La Forêt Bleu, uh, La Somme, Ardante, uh, and he is also remembered for his decadent novels and short stories, such as Monsoir de Focas and History de Masques, uh, as well as for one of his best novels, uh, Sonius, uh, in which he links to portraits exhibited by Antonio de la Gandra in 1893. Uh, he also constantly attacks the uh, academia, or, you know, academia. He, he attacks academics in his columns, uh, but he he desperately also wants to be a member of the mm. same groups he attacks. Yeah, um, that checks out. <laughs> yep, and his his relentless networking and presence, uh, it does help him take off in a couple of ways, because at one point, he is the best paid journalist in all of Paris, which is wow. incredible. Yes. So uh, so much like our, our buddy Proust, he also dies young. He dies at the age of 50 uh, in June 1906 in Facamp uh, after returning to live with his mother, uh, the only person who seemed to still like him, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, he was suffering from TB, syphilis. He was in deep in drug abuse and addiction. But the ultimate cause of death was an enema, unfortunately. It perforated his colon. Uh so his last words are, you have defeated me, Paris, is, were his last words. So he's just, <laughs> I love this guy. I, I love yeah, his backstory. I, I'm going to use those as my own last words. I don't have the context <laughs> yet, but I love it. And I'm, I'm going to borrow that. That's great. Yes. Yeah, so, so how did these two come at odds? Let's talk about the beef here. Um, so Laurent's whole deal was talking trash. Uh, and he often apologized later for the things he had written about his friends and his colleagues. Um, however, this time it didn't go that way. Uh, Lorraine liked to do these scathing takedowns and occasionally even used additional pen names <laughs> to do this blind style reporting about these people. And sometimes the targets fought back. Uh, actress uh, Madame Bob Walker physically assaulted him uh, in 18. 18- 96, which actually just made him more famous. Uh, James J. Conway, the the guy who runs that Strange Flowers website, has a whole breakdown of what happened uh, with those two. Please go to it. It goes really in depth. Um, (laughs) But we're going to stay on the safe surface here for time's sake, but please go treat yourself. Uh, In the daily French paper, uh, Le Fiargo, uh, Jean Laurent wrote a lot of smack about a young writer named Marcel Proust, (laughs) saying that he was one of those pretty little young men in society down with a bad case of literature. I am obsessed with that. I hope someone says that about me. Down with a bad case of literature. I do love that so much. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) So Laurent said that Proust's uh, pleasure and days was a blend of uh, illegalic flabbiness, elegant and subtle little nothings, pointless tenderness, inane flirtations in a precious and pretentious style. Oof. Wow. I, mean, I love a, like pointless a, tenderness. What a what a what a sweet thing to say. Pointless tenderness. It's it's like such a brutal takedown, but it's also written beautifully. <laughs> yes, he's like take uh, that fancy boy. Oof. Yes, oh my god, like 
I don't know if someone left that for me as like a review of like, that's what Kirkus said about one of my books. Oh, I'd be yeah. like, this is beautiful. Thank that you. That feels like Even a star. I'm... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness. So this dismissive review um, also did something else that added extra fuel to this fire. Uh, he alluded to Proust's romance with writer Lucien uh, Daudet, uh, son of the much more famous Alphonse Daudet. Uh, despite publishing 15 books, Lucien is mostly known for his dad and dating Proust. Uh, sorry, Lucien. <laughs> um, but why is this a problem? So, so Proust was never actually out of the closet. Uh, he never confirmed being gay publicly. He was known to have a lot of relationships with men, and his contemporaries and his friends knew and acknowledged it. Uh, and even his housekeeper uh actually no his housekeeper denied it uh in her memoirs uh that's like that's novel... a loyal housekeeper you gotta hope yes. that she got like pearls or something to to keep that yeah yes and like his his major novel you know in search of lost time that the giant book uh you know it discusses you know homosexuality at length uh and several characters are written as gay or bisexual it's a theme that occurs in several of his works uh including his unfinished book that's published posthumously uh so our boy Laurent makes a makes a big mistake here yeah uh so enraged by this Proust demands a duel uh so for the, <laughs> that's the so natural the next, escalation just to it say is it. the natural escalation yeah. uh so for the next several days uh you know our our sickly Proust uh <laughs> was uh getting prepared to fight uh proust had fought at least six duels at this point which makes me feel like a bit of a failure as a writer i've had no <laughs> duels no i haven't had a have you had any duels i've had no duels but i was gonna say after this we can we can do it we can bring it back we can oh good <laughs> Good. so uh and it's funny so he's had six duels by this point and if you do the math uh, if he'd had six duels by the time of this fight on February 5th, 1897, that meant Proust was 26 and had Ooh. six duels at that point. So I'm I'm 40, no duels. You got to catch just... up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it is uh, it is February 5th, 1897 on a rainy day. Uh, Lorraine is just soaked in ether. <laughs> he is ready to go. Uh, Proust at this point is, you know, he's in his like sickly recluse stage. Uh, and they square off in a field that is the traditional dueling spot in town, which <laughs> I feel like I have to stress. The town has a traditional dueling spot. Can you imagine like you want to have a picnic there, but they're like, ah, oh, sorry, we have to use it for the duels today. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. Oh, my God. So the uh, so the weapons are decided to be pistols, uh, shots to be taken at a distance of 25 paces. Uh, Proust shoots first. Uh, and it lands harmlessly by Laurent's foot. Laurent returns fire, and it goes wide. Witnesses agree the duel's complete. Proust's honor is restored. No one gets shot. No one dies. No one's hurt. You know, this is not Hamilton. Um, <laughs> however, afterwards, Proust refers to the duel as an example of what, like, a, a hardcore badass he is. Uh, in 1904, he writes, I remember when I fought with M. Laurent, a time when I had not yet set the day, but I was already there in my morning coat, ready. My only concern was that the duel did not take place before noon. So he's really a lot, a lot of boasting going on here. And it's, yeah. it's also, I think it's important to understand how duels functionally, uh, function culturally at the time um there, there's an article uh in the, the book the death of dueling by wade elliott where he discusses the idea um of aristocracy and nobility and class requiring a belief that 
you know, certain people are above others based on their personal characteristics. <laughs> and a duel is arranged upon combat between people with matched weapons, matched rules, uh, a, a, an agreed upon location, uh, fought based on a culturally like imaged code of honor. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're, you know, you're all on a level ground, no matter what your status is. Uh, yeah. And the point isn't so much to kill your opponent, but to gain quote unquote satisfaction that your reputation is intact because you were willing to die for it. Um, that's why it largely happened between nobility and other upper classes and usually just amongst men. Yeah, uh, yes. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> well, and what a gamble uh, too, because you say, you know, it's not Hamilton, but it's like, you have to hope that there really is honor throughout or you are going to get killed in this duel. So you have to hope yes, that you're both you... fancy boys. Or you know how to use that that weird like musket pistol thing where the shots go all over the place. Yeah. You, know, you, can, you can aim at a tree and you can end up, you know, killing somebody. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Such, oh. such a mess. So so after the duel, uh, our guys never really got along. Like they never, they're not going to go hanging out. <laughs> yeah. uh, Laurent continues to start beef with lots of other people long until his death uh, at the age of 50. Uh, so now I have to ask you at the end of all of this, <laughs> Whose side are you on in this beef here? I mean, I feel like I'm pretty firm on my side. Uh, Whose side do you take in this? Yeah, I mean, what a good thought. It's so funny because Proust, you know, baby Proust at age, let's say 26 when this is happening. um, The fact that he's had a bunch of duels to this point, suspect. But it's also a sign (laughs) of the times. But also like, hey, Laurent, you do not out somebody. You deserve yes. to get dueled. We all know this. If that is, I don't know if that's the term to get dueled, but he he got <laughs> dueled and he deserved to get dueled. Yes, I think. No, I How agree. do you feel? <laughs> I, no, I agree a hundred percent. I'm on Team Laurent, not just because he's this total badass. When I think about, oh wait, what do you mean you're on over. Team? You're on Team Proust. Oh no, you are correct. I am yeah. on Team Proust. <laughs> yeah. Hold on, I'm going. To, I'm going to edit that part. Okay. Uh, yes, I'm on Team Proust, even though Laurent is this total badass. Yes. Uh, you know, with his ether-soaked mayhem, uh, <laughs> yeah. Laurent was wrong. You know, outing someone never correct, never right. Yeah. Uh, yes. Even the housekeeper, she was like, "I know better than this," and I'm gonna. I'm going to tell, even, (laughs) didn't you say, I just realized, I think this just clicked for me. She, in her memoirs or something, did not out him. Just the fact that she had a memoir or memoirs. Fascinating. Go Proust. Yes. No, absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) And that's, and that's, those are our rivals there. Um, You know, before we wrap things up, Jordan, where can our readers find you? Like what's. What should they be reading? Where can they find you on the internet? Oh yeah, I want to make a I want to make a pun about. I was going to say in the ether, um, but, but I guess it's a <laughs> different kind of ether, if you will. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm on the internet in all the usual places. And the blessing about the weird spelling of my name is that I'm at Jordan Castle. Uh, most places you can find me. Um, and disappearing act anywhere books are sold. And also, hopefully, eating a sandwich with Eric in real life sometime soon. Yes, please. That sounds great. And uh, yeah, thank you everybody for tuning in to this episode of Arch Penemies. Uh, go pick up something good to read and remember to take a side. 